So Nicholas Darvis, all right, man, probably one of my favorites for sure. And I love his picks over here. <laughs> Nothing like a cold one studying stock charts. It's my kind of guy. So um, started, hopefully most people are familiar with, with Darvis. I mean, how can you not be, right? He's one of my favorites. And before we go there, some more uh, vintage visuals. The classic of all time. This is the first press of this hardcover, 1960. This should be required reading before you make any first trade in your whole lifetime. So if you're brand new and you haven't made a trade, don't make a trade until you read this at least once, twice, or three times. One of the best. It's my second favorite stock book ever. And it's just, it's a read. So many people have benefited from that. It's a classic of all time. Started in 52. Um, I won't get in all that, how he, but he, he became hooked on the market because he, he made this penny stock thing and penny stocks were just a disaster for him after that, as you'll see. But he read nearly 200 books on the market. He dove himself into the market, spent nearly eight hours a day while he was working full time as a professional dancer. So, I mean, he was so persistent. I think that's the best word for him. He was, he would not give up, even though he lost money again for the great, for guess what, six years. So we're going to get to that in a second. And his main, main source of study was a week old copy of Barron's, which he would study the stock tables after a week and looking for price and volume. He didn't read the tape. He didn't, he looked at charts, but they were old and he looked at stock tables. He created his box theory strategy that looked at price action within certain price and time levels that created these boxes of support and resistance. He found a consistency of the action and movements of the stocks in trends. So um, combined both fundamentals and technicals in analyzing stocks. He called this his techno fundamentalist approach, but he relied much more heavily on technical action. But he did want the fundamentals. He said, I would always look out and say, what is the next big thing? If he was around today, he'd be going, AI is the next big thing. I know. I mean, because that, that's what he did every time in his books. So he was featured in Time Magazine in May 1959 that detailed his successful story of stock trading, which went against everything Wall Street was preaching. Another vintage visual for you. Here is that original 1959. This is the original Time Magazine from 59. That's him. This is his story. I posted this on Twitter today, this little part up here. What kept him <clears throat> on track? He reread Battle for Investment Survival every week or two. And you'd say, well, how can he read the book in a week? Remember, it's only 65 pages long. I can go through this book, the key parts of it, in one to two hours. So that's what he did. That one and Humphrey Neal's book, Tape Reading and Market Tactics. I have that original up here. It's from 1932. It's a great book too. So it's in my top 15 that we showed the other day. So Darvis, the Time Magazine got a lot of attention and that's when he got the um, offer to write the book. So that then he wrote How I Made Two Million. That came out in, 60, in 1960. Then I pound the table on this one. Here it is. He wrote a few other books, but you can still make it in the market. This was written in 1977. 
So just to show you, Darvis was not a one-hit wonder. A lot of people don't know about this book. It is one of my favorite books. And this is really cool. Here's the paperback edition that came out that year. It's like fits in your pocket. I don't know what happened to my cover, but here's the back of it. And it's a great book. And it shows, since it was written in 77, he talks about in there how he used the same strategy to navigate the 70s markets that he did in the late 50s when he wrote How I Made Two Million. So there's, a, there's an answer to your uh, early question, uh, Richard. He didn't, he didn't change strategies. He waited for the right time. And his strategies we're going to see are a little bit different. That's why he to his strengths. So let's keep going. Um, okay, failures. Made all the same mistakes for six straight years. There's that six years again, getting his master's degree. Um, he looked for tips from others, was you know, subscribing to a ton of newsletters, bought cheap penny stocks didn't follow what the market was doing, didn't research companies, divert. He, at one time he had 30 stocks. He, could, he couldn't even name them all, but beaten down stocks, all the same mistakes everybody's made, you know, just repeating them over and over again. Um, he bought Jones and Laughlin Steel after researching it was based on a broker recommendation because it had a low PE rating. He put all his money at the time was 36K. It soon fell and kept falling. He lost 9,000 on the, on the trade. <laughs> But a broker recommendation, another tip, okay? We saw it over and over again. He attained his first successes with his system. And this is interesting. And it was up 500K after he finally put his system together. Guess what happened? Euphoria. He became overconfident. And, you know, he lived in Paris and was in these states a lot because he was traveling for his dancing uh, profession. After he was up a half a million, he moved closer to Wall Street. This picture over here, that's actually him on Wall Street. Maybe at the time, looking at it, going, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna clean up over here, right? He started listening to others, taking more tips. He abandoned his strategy. So there's the lesson for you right there. What got him the first half million, he started trying this. Let me try that. Let me try this. He lost 100K within two weeks. So and then he woke himself up and said, what am I doing? Why did I move? Why is closer to Wall Street better for me? It's worse. I'm listening to brokers in the offices all the time. And I'm, I'm deviating from what got me here. But he, he woke up and finally fixed it for himself. Yeah, I was actually just listening to that part of the book, uh, How I Made Two Million uh, yesterday, and he talks about how he lost his feel for what the market was doing during this time when he was listening to news. He was he was feeling the rush of Wall Street where everybody's got an opinion, everybody's got a great, mm -hmm. and he lost his ability to read the stock tables and differentiate normal price action. And it wasn't until he moved away and actually told his brokers, you're not allowed to tell me anything if I, if, I, if I don't ask for it and that type of thing. That's when he redeveloped his feel and was able to gain the intuition back and, and get a sense of what the market and individual stocks were doing. That's correct. And that's, that's like what Dar uh, Mark Douglas talks about. He goes, you really don't start making the big failures till you start winning big. And that's what he did. And he got cocky about it. He lost his focus. <clears throat> pushed his strategy to the side, listening to others, just like you said, and it cost him big time. <clears throat> okay, now the successes. 
bought Texas Gulf producing based solely on his price action after his big loss. In so he was so discouraged. He was like, then this stock started popping up and he says, what's this? And he bought it, sold it in five weeks, made 5K. And he's back to his um, strategy again. In August 57, his newfound strategy found nothing new to buy. So he was in 100% cash in the baby bear market. The one we saw that Dreyfus stepped aside because he saw it. We saw Loeb step aside from that one. Look at this. These three great traders all saw the same thing. This market is coming down. I'm out. Or, you know, Dreyfus was 75% cash. So <clears throat> that's what they did. They all saw the same thing. So when the market started to stabilize in late 57 and early 58, he bought into Lorillard, which he was watching closely. It built a 2427 price box. That means it was trading between 2427 in this box and it cleared 27. So he quickly um, he bought it after it cleared there. He was quickly stopped out, but then it reversed higher and he came back into it. That's a key strategy. All these guys, O'Neill did that all the time. He goes, just because you got stopped out once or even twice, it may come back. It could shake you out. We see a lot of shakeouts these days. And then they get their, their footing and then they rip again. So he pyramid his buys on that stock. It's continued rising. He sold out and made a 68% return because he wanted to buy in the E.L. Bruce, which he made a killing on. So in early 58, Mark come back strong. He goes into Diners Club. This was one of his first bigger success. He made a 10K profit on that one. And then Richard, can you read the last one? It's yeah, he, he took his profits from Lorillard and, and Diners Club and put them into E.L. Bruce. Okay. And then, yeah, here's the rest of it. E.O. Bruce was a big winner. It climbed off what's called a high tight flag pattern. We've seen these before. We're going to see them in the class. Taser did that. Syntex did that. There's been several throughout history. That's where the big money is. Um, he piled into it. Stock was suspended and traded over the counter, and he held fast and ended up for a 228 profit, 295K profit on that because he piled into that because it was working. <laughs> made a pilot buy of universal controls in August 58, made two large pyramid buys that started to take off. We're going to look at that stock here in a minute in detail. It's very interesting. Watch Theoco Chemical. We were in the, this is the time we were in the space race with Russia, the Sputnik one and all that kind of stuff. And Theoco Chemical comes out. We, this, this chart of Darvis's buys and sells on this is in the course when we get to the 50s. It's very interesting. Um, so he made several months, it was rising. He took a pilot position and it broke out to new highs. He made a pyramid buys on the way up into new highs, exercised a complicated rights option. And he held them all the way into a climax run in May of 59. This is the one stock, I think, I'm pretty sure it's this, yeah, it's this one. This is the one that went into a climax run and he didn't, this is the one where he didn't put a stop loss behind him. You know why? The exchange stopped accepting stop losses on this stock. And Darvis said to himself, well, that's my sell strategy. If you're going to take that away from me, I'm going to sell it. And he ended up selling it, and it was right into a climax run. He never did that again because he always used a stop loss behind his big leaders. You're going to see that in a minute here. Um, he bought Texas Instruments in 59 on a breakout and made two additional pyramid buys. 
he had 50% of his account, which was big by now in a Texas insurance. So concentration, when you know you're right, remember the Stanley Drunken Miller, when you have tremendous conviction, go for the jugular. That's what he did. And I was just, again, listening to this yesterday. I believe it was Universal Controls. Uh, he had made a substantial profit. <clears throat> Everything was working. Uh, he realized the the paper returns he had. And he kind of had to make the decision. Do I want to sell this and take the profits? Or do I follow my rules and stick with this thing during the trend? And he actually wrote on a card to himself, remember Bruce, referencing yep. E.L. Bruce, <clears throat> and went and got a drink and thought to himself. And That's ultimately, right. he stuck with his rules and you know, continued to ride that thing until it truly, you know, broke down and, yep. and uh, went to the climax run. So uh, again, going back to history, remembering precedents, remembering what you did in the past, uh, he, he obviously made a killing following, following the, that system. And to add to that, <clears throat> writing himself a note. Remember Baruch did it when he made those mistakes in 1930, he wrote himself a whole page notes <laughs> back then. So he writes himself a note. Remember Loeb, I did my ruling reasons. If it didn't do what I want, he wrote that down. So it does, there's something magic between the brain and the hand. We always learn that in school. You know, we didn't, I didn't, we didn't have computers when I was in school. We wrote everything by hand and there's something about that. And he did it again. You're right. That's a great point. Uh, I'm glad you you listen to that because yeah good thing i was on a flight yesterday i got, I got yeah. a lot of darvis in you're picking right up before. stuff i can't remember yeah um, no it's that in that entire book i you know john recommended it but you you got to read it and if if you read it a while ago you got to reread it it was actually the first one that was that was assigned to me that i read the first training book i read in dr wish's class and it, it's such a great foundation because you see him make the mistakes that everybody makes and you see him you know, persevere, make more mistakes, learn from them, um, and ultimately, you know, find his system, find what works for him and, and make a killing. So it, it's excellent. Yes, it's required reading. <clears throat> you can read it in a day or two. I mean, really. And like he said, I mean, How I Made Two Million takes him through the very beginning of all the mistakes, the creation of the strategy, and then the strategy working, and then him getting off track and then getting back on track. You can still make it in the market. The book I showed earlier from 1977. That book starts in the 70s saying, I'm just sitting here watching this bear market in 73, 74, and I'm not doing anything. And then in 75, he goes, I'm looking at things. I'm watching this. Things are starting to happen. And he details his, you know, some of the stocks he was in. And then the rest of the book, he goes through and he says, He's actually teaching other people. Like he's sitting in the bar that he always used to sit in. Yeah, he's in a restaurant, and, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he talked to um, these people and they go, hey, Darvis, aren't you the famous guy? You know, can you look at my portfolio? And this guy said, and so Darvis says, well, how many stocks you got in there? And the guy writes them all down. He had like 25 or 30 stocks. And he asked Darvis, he goes, how many stocks you are you in right now? And Darvis says, four. You know, I mean, that's the difference. So- can you read that last one? Zenith Radio and Fairchild Camera were two bigger winners. Yes. Yeah, yeah, sure. Zenith Radio and Fairchild Camera were his next two big winners. Uh, see the excerpt for details. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. So during the part of, early part of 62, he kept getting kicked out of his trades through tight risk management stops. 
he was totally out of the market by late spring when the market broke wide open. That's when O'Neill turned around in, in, in 62 and started shorting those three stocks that were his first big win. Here's Darvis doing the same thing. I'm watching what the market's doing. It's kicking me out. I'm staying out. Stayed out of the brutal bear market in 73, 74. I talked about that. And late 74 started to turn upward. Um, oh, National Sideman Conductor in February 75. He watched the stock for two months before he did anything. And we're going to see he did that with Houston Oil, too. Just incredible patience, waiting for the right time. <laughs> he bought it and doubled his first buy within three months. It pulled back and he sold out, but then it turned around again. And he repurchased it, made another profit when he sold it in June 75. So back to what O'Neill said and what he said earlier. I got kicked out. Doesn't mean I gave up on it. But Moore McCormick in February 75 at 34 wrote it out for six months to 85 based solely on price and volume action. And then did, uh, can you read that one? So, yeah, did well in the 75 to 76 uptrend by staying concentrated. He was in Houston Oil, 101% gain, Teledyne, 149% gain, and Mitchell Energy, 53% gain. Yeah, so again, a handful of the leaders, he was in it, he wrote them up, pyramided them up, put a stop loss, and took the gain. And could you touch on, on how he moved his stop up? Because it is a little bit different than uh, the other traders. I think we're going to, let's let's see what Universal Control says about that. Yeah. <clears throat> Monster stock winners. Here's this, These are some of the big ones from the 50s. Laura Lard, E.L. Bruce, Universal. We've talked about those. Zenith Radio, Fairchild Camera, Texas Instruments. Then Houston Oil, National Semiconductor, Tandy. Those were in the 70s. So the, the same charts, these stock big winners, you know, they're not hundreds of them. They did very well, but these were the big ones. And when they knew they were in the big ones, they piled in. Same thing O'Neill did. Same thing Livermore did. Baruch, Wyckoff. Oh, I'm going to repeat that a million times. Okay, next is strategies. Here they are. This, after losing all that and all that six-year frustration again, guess what he comes up with? Buy only the right stocks, rising through the top of their price boxes, just like Livermore through the uh, least resistance area, just like Dreyfus through a new a new high. Darvis loved to buy all-time new highs. So did Jack Dreyfus. So did O'Neill. Strict loss control. Each trade had a stop loss. Remember, he's not watching the market every day. O'Neill used mental stops. Ropel uses mental stops. They're watching the market all the time. You can have mental stops if you're watching the market. He wasn't. He's reading a weak old uh, copy of Barron's. So he had to keep a stop loss in there. Made pilot buys to test his stocks. Livermore called it his probing strategy. Darvis called it his pilot buys. Pyramid up on your winners. Trailing stop loss. Focus on price and volume action. Every event and news. Every, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Okay. Every event and news gets reflected in price action. Stocks anticipate. He did not short stocks. Stay out of sideways or declining markets. His strategy was to make big gains during strong market uptrends. That's what he did. That's what he focused on. And he made a ton doing it. So, And O'Neill, too. O'Neill shorted at the very beginning of his career. He didn't do much of that later on. You know why? He became an expert at finding the major winner and made so much on those and perfected that 
he didn't have to do the short side. He said it was very difficult anyway when he tried it. So um, next. Or was there another one? Uh, push your pride and ego to the side. There we go again. Euphoria creeps in. You got to be aware of it. Be You'll be wrong at least half the time. Work on having an unemotional attitude towards stocks. Adopt a cold post analysis. This is what he called his cause of errors table study. So he would analyze his losers and figured out, why did I lose? My What was my cause of error on this stock? Again, writing it down. Concentrated holding, only five to eight stocks at any one time. A far cry from holding up to 30 stocks when he was figuring it all out and not getting anywhere. Understand the market environment you are in. Stocks follow trends. Stay focused and disciplined. And he read those two books I mentioned earlier. Reread them every week, every week or two. Stick. So writing things down, rereading constantly, that constant drumbeat. I've said this before. We need a constant drumbeat of the successful strategies to stay on track. We're all human. We get off track. We make stupid mistakes, no matter how, how long you've been doing it. So, okay. And some great quotes from him. I posted some of these on Twitter today. I made up my mind to buy high and sell higher, not buy low and sell high. Buy high and sell higher. That's what Dreyfus did. That's what O'Neill did. That's what Livermore did. Here it is. I became overconfident, and that is the most dangerous state of mind anyone can develop in the stock market or equal to euphoria. I believe in analysis, not forecasting. I decided to let my stop loss decide for me. My only reason for buying a stock is it's rising in price. If that's not happening, I'm not interested. I knew I had to keep rigidly to the system I had carved out for myself. So see, he carved this one out, but the strategies are the same as all the other ones before him. But he he knew he wasn't watching the market every day. So that's how he tweaked it for him. I had to do a stop loss. And we're going to see that in a minute. I keep out in bear markets and leave such exceptional stocks to those who don't mind risking their money against the market trend. As for good stocks and bad, there are no such things. Only going up and going down. And then uh, some of these, first check the market as a whole. Is it rising or falling? Stay out if it's against you. Um, don't fight the tape. Again, the tape tells all, Stan Weinstein. I have no ego in the market. If I make a mistake, I admit it immediately and get out fast, okay? And then I think we're gonna look at, um, oh, oh, his published excerpts. Um, his techno fundamentalist box theory. Maybe I won't go into this, but um, it, he wouldn't buy stocks <laughs> prior leaders that had fallen because of that overhead resist resistance. It says in here, as, as described by Loeb, these previous buyers would hope and wait for the stock to come back. He didn't want it. He knew this overhead resistance would hold back former leaders and keep them from making new highs. They can come back. NVIDIA did after the 2022 bear market. Some of those 2020 leaders are coming up a little bit, like, Zscaler and Roku and Datadog. But if you look at their two or three year chart, there's a ton of overhead still over there. So you got to watch those. Um, he didn't like that. He wanted all time highs. <clears throat> okay, this next two pages. If I was to sum up this class <clears throat> in two slides, this is it. I love this part. This is what is never taught in a 
stock market class. I never saw anything like this when I was in college. <clears throat> this is just a little excerpt. On, I put this in how legendary trade, traders made millions and this sums up the entire book in just this. In early May 59, he made four initial buys into other leading stocks because the market was taken off. He took positions in Zenith Radio, Beckman Instruments, Fairchild Camera, and Litton. Once he established his positions, he set stop loss orders on each one of them at 10% below the purchase price. So there's the answer to that, Richard, on, that, on those. I'm not taking more than a 10% loss. <clears throat> on May 18th, he was stopped out of Beckman Instruments. It pulled back and triggered his 10% loss. The very next day, Linton Industries fell to 106 from his buy point of 112. Even though it had not yet reached his stop loss order, he sold out and took a 5% loss. He didn't think it was acting correctly. There's that, it was acting funny thing. You can get a sense of that. This is another great skill that comes to the best ever, their ability to trust their judgment, like Loeb said, when things don't seem right and they can cut their losses even smaller than their original strategy allowed. So what did he do next? He bought four positions, two he's already kicked out. After those had been closed, he took that capital and moved it into his other two holdings, which were acting well and displaying strength. He followed up with his initial purchase of 500 shares in Fairchild Camera with a pyramid buy of 4,000 more shares, ranging in price from 123 to 127. Is there any more under that or no? No, that's it. Okay, so next one. Um, he then made a follow-up buy to his initial position in Zenith Radio with a 5,000 share purchase, ranging in price from 99 to 107. These two stocks ended up contributing to the millions he made during that strong 58-59 market. I say this, <clears throat> this is classic stock trading skill at its finest that is never taught in a textbook or a classroom, except for this one. <laughs> Darvis, with just those four transactions, can teach one plenty about the stock market. He stayed in tune with a strong market and bought into four leading and fundamentally strong companies that were initially moving up in price. He took small positions to test his investments. He set strict loss-cutting strategy in place to control his emotions and limit his risk. He took his first loss in stride and then cut his second loss even smaller without getting angry or hoping for comebacks. He also experienced the average 50% win-loss ratio that even the best traders throughout history have experienced. The difference is that the best traders keep the losses small and let the winners ride. He then took available capital and piled it into these other two stocks that were moving up in price. Look at this, a 4,000 share purchase, a 5,000 share purchase. He's, con he's convinced I'm right. Now, he can't convince it. I mean, the market could turn, but what he did was the market's telling me I'm right on these two. He pyramided winning stocks, and that leads to big profits. He then held those two stocks until they showed selling signals or forced him to sell as he kept moving up his stop loss behind it. And I said, that is how legendary traders made millions in the market. That whole example is can be summarized. That's the whole course. That's what these, that's what these guys did. That's how they became successful. Four stocks, two didn't work, two did, pile into the new ones, the ones that are working, cut back short on the other ones, ride them up, and I'm in a strong trend, and I know that. And the market's telling me I'm right because they're moving in that direction. The first two told me I'm wrong, and I'm gone. So I just think that's, that's the whole course. We can stop right now. If you just memorize that, 
we're done. <laughs> okay, universal controls. This comes right out of that first edition. This will answer some questions here. This is him. This is not me. He's saying, I noticed this little company in July 58. It had an enormous spurt in volume, number A. He didn't buy it. I just noticed it had this huge, look at that bar on A to the right at the bottom. Look at that volume bar. It blows away everything before that. And look at the pattern. If that's not a perfect cup with handle thing, going the same, like Dreyfus, I saw the same pattern. That's a beautiful one right there. And that burst, he, but he didn't buy it. So he made a cautious buy when it then forms this flat base at B. And look at the volume coming out of the flat base. Now he's still watching it and he's probably going, gosh, I must've missed that one, <clears throat> but it rebased. So he takes a position, pilot buy, 300 shares. Two weeks later, the stock begins to firm up and he purchases 1,200 at C. It keeps moving. He buys 1,500 more. Now, I'll say this. O'Neill, when he starts a position, he won't buy if it's past 5%, and he's buying smaller lots. This is how he tweaked this strategy. Darvis's pyramid strategy was, it's telling me I'm right. I'm really going in. And that's what he did. But he was comfortable enough with that because he put stop losses behind it. So shortly afterward, the company changes its names. It splits two for one. That's why the, the chart looks weird. That split for two for one down there should really be on top of that other one. And um, where am I at? So he embarked on a series of the, oh, this is when he got his big head and he went to Wall Street. He says in here, in January 59, I embarked on a series of operations that came near to ruining me. And he left this one alone. He, he actually, I think in the book, he said, I forgot about it which was great. So he left it alone, but in March something, so he's running this whole thing. Look at, this is a massive climax run right here as it goes into that run. He says, but in March, something began to happen that spelled trouble and trouble surely came. There's that, it's acting funny again. Now he didn't sell into climax runs. You can see that he didn't sell. He sold at E because what did he say? He said, after a while, three-week rocketing from 66 to 102, that's a definition of a climax run. And look at the volume, highest volume ever, biggest price increase. And it's already, what did it do? It's already tripled by that time. It switched, it switched its momentum and began to go in the other direction. I did not like the look of this drop at all. It fell as if an air pocket <laughs> had come and there seemed no sign of a rise. So what did he do? He raised his stop loss to just below the last closing price and he sold out at E because his price kicked him out. And he says here, his prices ranging from 86 to 89 were more than 12 points below the high, but he was well content with this. There's no reason, he didn't sell in a climax runs because he wasn't watching the market. So there's a great example of how he, what he did with his stop loss. He put, he put him behind the ones I just sold, told you earlier 10%, okay, but he would he would watch, he, he would see how the stock's working. If it's really moving, he would pull that back a little bit, especially O'Neill would always say, when am I going to sell it? When If I have a big cushion in a stock, I'll give it some more room. A lot of traders do that. So 
Um, but then he he did the stop loss and he's like, okay, I'm 12 points off the high. I'm okay with that. Look how much he made anyway. I just think that's a great example. In the course, we go through, I think, all seven or eight other ones that he did really well on, kind of like this. Uh, can I add one thing? Um, yeah. it, it doesn't have to do specifically with this chart, but it's something that <clears throat> was in a Q&A that he did along with the book, uh, How to Make Two Million. Uh, he was asked, um, isn't setting a tight stop loss dangerous? And his response was, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was basically like, yeah, if you're setting it in the middle of nowhere. But his buys were either right at the top of the box as it's breaking through or off the bottom of the box as it's rebounding upwards. So he yeah. knows quickly what his line is. And that's right under that is where he places stop. He's not setting a tight stop loss, you know, 3% away, 5% away, whatever tight means for him when a stock is just, you know, it's already trending. It's in the middle of nowhere. He's doing it right as it's resolving the setup where he knows quickly where he's right and where it's wrong. So I, I think that's, that was a really that, good answer to his that's to that a great question. point. Thanks, Richard, for putting that out. Let me also add, Darvis did not use moving averages. He's using boxes that he creates watching price and volume action within a certain range. If you go back to the other guys before, Moving averages didn't really come around until the early 60s. And then really what well, the first one was kind of the 200 day. There's a great book in the 60s called How Charts Can Help You in the Stock Market by William Jiller. It's the first book I've seen that really has a moving average in it. The older books like Technical Analysis and Stock Market Profits by Schaubacher in the 30s, they used trend lines, trend lines based on price action. And that's kind of like, so Darvis kind of went, I'm not using trend lines, I'm building boxes around the action. So you kind of went from trend lines to moving averages to box theory. And, you know, a lot of traders today use moving averages. So you have the 200, the 50, the 21, and the 10. Those are the most popular ones. And so, again, um, moving averages weren't really out here yet for him. But trend lines were, but he didn't. So here's another tweak of, but they're still doing the same thing. Does that make sense? I mean, they're still looking at the same patterns. They're just, he created this. In the course, I think it's next week. I have a chart where I have the O'Neill box, uh, the O'Neill patterns, and I put the Darvis boxes in there too. And guess what? They're all inside of each other. So you'll see that. Yeah, and a session or two. It's a different lens to basically look at the same thing. It's yes, it's just, yeah, it's, it's the same characteristic. And for anybody who hasn't isn't quite familiar, his boxes a box would form when a stock breaks through, forms a high. There's kind of a clear resistance level that's unable to move a higher from, and also forms a corresponding low where again it's kind of a floor. So you're yeah. you're moving back and forth between a high and low, a range, and you can see that it breaks clearly through that right near B and C. Here is you, you've got yeah. that tight range that contracts, and that that I guess that would be kind of a, a thirty-seven and um, thirty-four box. You've got right. a kind of thirty-seven, right. thirty-eight, and then a thirty-four as the low. And exactly. I'll, I'll I'll point it out. Here's here's kind of the low. It's kind of Hard to see, but the arrow right there and then the high would be this high here. 
But what what's interesting about this? So 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 far today, so we've been an hour and a half, and you I I want you to see the strategies are similar, but they tweak them. I I will say that as we go through every trader, and you need to do the same for yourself. But hopefully now you're seeing the how it works or how they did it or how they implemented it. And once we get past all the trader stuff, which will be Saturday, will be the last one. We're going to start getting into the pattern recognition. And when we go through the market cycles and the stocks, you're going to, we're going to do this on every single, there's like 200 charts. We're going to do this too. Well, a hundred stock charts, but the same thing happens on the market cycles too. So we're going to dig into a lot of this as the course. And you're going to really see, that's why I want you to remember who these traders were, get to know who they were, what their strengths were, what their failures were, what their strategies were, because we're going to bring their names up as we start going through the market cycles from 1900 through today. So, Perfect. And there's a really cool question from Jay. Uh, and the question is, how did he stay on top of the market when he was traveling, working in Europe? Uh, seems like there would be a big lapse between market action and his awareness. And John, I'll let you take first stab at this. He did... Um, kind of like, what do you call the Western Union things? The um, cable, cable wires, right? Yeah. With his broker. Telegrams, so, cable. Yes, tel telegrams. He would get those and he'd go, he, he was constantly on the phone with his brokers because he worked through brokers and he would say, send me the telegram or the price action on this. And they telegraph it to him wherever, whatever city's in, in Paris or wherever he was. So he would keep up. He wouldn't just, like on the weekend, just go through Barron's. He was he was aware of what's going on. His brokers would contact him and he would do it through telegraph wire stuff. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add, uh, you know, he's traveling so much, sometimes he would have to send a telegram, you know, where he was and then also send it in advance just yeah. in case he had to pick it up. And I think there was some story they told where, you know, he had them write it in shorthand where, you know, upper range is this, lower hand is this. And he... They thought he was a spy yes. or something. It was it was kind of yeah. funny. Yeah, he didn't he didn't want the recipient on the other side to get the tip of what he was doing. Right, and so he had it do it in code, in code. And the guy, you're right. The guy thought he was some kind of international spy or something. It's a great story. Yeah, <clears throat> incredible guy. I mean, he's one of my favorites. So yeah, for sure. So if we haven't convinced you to read the book yet, you know, <laughs> go go ahead and do it. We might have told you the whole book here, but <laughs> yeah, you gotta read it anyway.